Hey, Why God Why family, this is Peter Engler, one of the co-hosts of the show. Unfortunately, on this episode, we had technical difficulties with our audio, but our guest's audio was really, really good. And we felt that the content of this episode was so good that we wanted to keep it as is. So as you listen, we appreciate your patience and your kindness, and we hope that this episode helps you respond to a question that you might not feel comfortable asking in church. Welcome to the Why Got Why podcast. My name is Peter Hengler. I'm one of the co-hosts here. We are part of the Luminov network of podcasts. We exist to respond to the questions you don't feel comfortable asking in church. I'm here with our illustrious uh, co-host, Aaron Mercer, and our fantastic producer, Nathan Yoder. We have a great episode. Before I get started, I want to make sure you know we're working with uh, InterVarsity Press. Um, So our guest today is Jay Kim. And he has a new book that actually comes out the day of this recording um, about analog Christianity. And so if you use the code YGUY, you get 30% off. But he's asking the big question, why do we feel so discontent, fragile, and foolish in the digital age? I don't know. That sounds like a pretty loaded question, Aaron. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm I'm really looking forward to this podcast. Uh, Thanks for being on here with us. Uh, What a great question. Uh, and one I think a lot of a lot of people are asking in this uh, day and age is so many so many digital tools, so many digital possibilities, and um, and yet uh, yeah, there's obviously there's a lot of discontent out there. This is going to be great to talk about. I'm really excited to talk more. You, you know, obviously uh, wisdom from your your book Analog Church, as well as the one that's coming out when this was podcast is coming out Analog Christian. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I think this is. This is great. I should say that we are recording this thing actually in early June, and I found out right before this podcast that we're on opposite sides of the NBA Finals here. Um, That's but right. We're, we're going to try not to let the <laughs> the uh, Celtics worry thing uh, get in the way of our conversation. Yes. And by the time this podcast comes out, we're going to know. You know, one of us is going to be sad. <laughs> what are you going to do? But um, right. yeah. love, love your enemies. Love your uh, enemies. That's right. There you go. Yeah, so, <laughs> there you so. go. Um, Jay, thanks so much for being on the, the podcast uh, with us and uh, would love to just, you know, maybe as an introduction to this conversation, just hear a little bit about your story, your your faith journey and uh, how you got to the church you're at now. Uh, and also, and also, you know, maybe start to tease out how that got you to want to, to write about this uh, important subject. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you guys so much for uh, spending some time and uh, letting me chat with you all and everybody listening. Really honored to be on and um, love love the work you guys are doing. Yeah. I mean, my story. You know, I'll tr- I'll try to keep it brief and not too boring. I've uh, I live and serve in the Silicon Valley of California, the sort of tech mecca of the world, and um, I've been here basically my whole life. So. I uh, wasn't born here. I was actually born in um, South Korea uh, to Korean parents. Obviously, my parents separated when I was really young and um, for a variety of reasons. And then my mother had uh, her sister lived out here in, in Silicon Valley, in San Jose specifically. 
So we came out here when I was young, really young, before I can remember. And um, I, I never left. I've been here basically my whole life. Left for short little seasons here and there, but essentially have been here my whole life. And have served um, as a pastor in the local church for uh, basically about 20 years now. Um, so within that 20 years, have served in a variety of pastoral roles uh, across four different churches in 20 years. Um, started out as a student ministries pastor and a college ministry pastor, had a season of church planting, and then was a teaching pastor at the church where I am on staff now and very recently transitioned into um, the the lead pastor role here at this church. So uh, and all of those churches and all of my local church context has been, again, right here, you know, in the Silicon Valley. And yeah, much of my more public work, you know, the the books um, and some other things I've done uh, that sort of lives quite a bit at the intersection between um, our, our ecclesiology and our discipleship to Jesus and the digital age. Um, yeah, a lot of it is informed by my geography and my own personal history and 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 the current reality of my life, which is that most of my family work in tech, uh, a significant percentage of our congregation here at our church works in tech. You know, I'm sitting in my office now. I could drive to the big giant Apple spaceship, their big uh, office, the new office they built a couple of years ago. I could drive to that office in about seven minutes and Google is about 15 minutes up the road and Facebook a short drive after that. So we really are kind of in the, in the epicenter of it. And that's, yeah, that's informed quite a bit of, of my work, quite a bit of uh, some of my own wrestling and tension with, you know, what are our digital technologies? What are they doing to us? Not just what are they doing for us? That, that, you know, that question is pretty easy to answer, but uh, more difficult, but I think more important question is what are they doing to us and how are they forming us? So, yeah, that's been a lot of, that's been a lot of my journey in the last several years. And uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. So I just want to jump early on because I've had a couple people say this, and I think this will help frame our conversation. So we're in Rochester, New York, you're in Silicon Valley. And I feel like outside of Silicon Valley, there's this idea that we have all these tech entrepreneurs that the way that <clears throat> I don't want to be crass, but the way that they make money is technology, but the way that they practice at home is there's nothing digital. There's no inventions. You know, they're trying like even at the schools, there's no laptops, but you felt the need to write analog church and analog Christianity. So give us kind of your real perspective on a daily basis, how, technology might be the same or different in uh, in Silicon Valley as you serve and minister in that area? That's a great question, Peter. Yeah, you know, I think some of it derives from um, that anecdotal story, but it is a true story that Steve Jobs was militant about his own children not using Apple products until they were adults. And it's it, we know it's a true story because he 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 told the story, <laughs> he confirmed it, and um, 
So I think that sort of anecdotal story has taken on, taken on a life of its own. However, also anecdotally, I would also say in my own experience with people, it is, um, it's far more common than you would think that uh, the men and women who create the digital technologies that are so ubiquitous in our lives, um, they are quite mindful of, in particular, um, their addictive properties. Um, and, and a part of it is because they understand it. You know, they make it, they create it. Uh, even, you know, on the business marketing side, I mean, it is mind-blowing how some of these big tech companies, you know, some of the research they do into, you know, uh, spheres of even like neurology. And this is, you know, this isn't anything new. It's been written about at length now, you know, by people like Tristan Harris and Jerron Lanier, you know, secular writers who have done a lot of work in this area. Um, you know, the famous sort of uh, study is that they there have been, and it's a true one, it's real. There have been brain scans done where um, people who are addicted to their digital devices, smartphones in particular, they've done brain scans where as the person is using their digital device, the same exact sort of neurological lights flare in their brain as when a cocaine addict um, does a line of cocaine or is about to do a line of cocaine. And, uh, you know, I don't say that to be alarmist or to scare anybody. I say it only to say, primarily to say, uh, one, it has been proven that our digital devices have inherently built within them a particular addictive property and that the men and women who create these um, technologies, because of their deep awareness of those addictive properties, um, they are wary of how much they allow, especially, you know, children uh, and, and even teenagers to use some of these things. And I think, you know, again, not to be alarmist, but that should say something to us, you know, that um, these are not just neutral uh, bits and pieces of technology that we place into the hands of, of, of young people, especially. Um, in the next book, Analog Christian, I open with the story of uh, this um, uh, advertising campaign that, that um, cigarette companies, Camel Cigarettes in particular in the 1940s, uh, used where it was called More Doctors. And they had these ads where they would have doctors, and I'm using air quotes here, these doctors, you know, smoking these cigarettes. And it would say, more doctors recommend camel cigarettes, you know, and the whole concept was that cigarette smoking cigarettes actually might be healthy for you, you know. And we, we, we look at advertisements like that today in the 2020s, and we just think how laughable that is, you know. Uh, and I do wonder sometimes if we're going to look back 40 years from now and think about how easily and casually we placed smartphones in the hands of 12-year-olds and just ask ourselves, how in the world, you know, what in the world were we thinking? How in the world did we do that? Um, so, because I, I do think there are some inherent dangers into the technology. So again, back to the original question, I think the people who make the technology are more deeply aware of those qualities. So I do think even in my experience as a pastor here in Silicon Valley, yeah, the people who are most uh, deeply connected into the development of these technologies, they do live with um, a deep awareness and a caution in terms of how much they themselves and then in particular 
you know, younger generations that they have a relationship with their own children or grandchildren, uh, they are quite wary and cautious about how much they allow, um, which is really fascinating, you know, and, and illuminating, I think. So let me just dig in there. Uh, this is, I think this could be interesting, help interesting, uh, an interesting way for our conversation to go. I'm sure it'll, we'll touch on a lot of points, but are there certain, uh, so as you're, as you're talking and you're talking about the people in your church and I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, what technologies they might be most concerned about. Like uh, sometimes I wonder if, you know, are there things that are in Silicon Valley or are commonplace uh, that we might think are maybe not cutting edge, but things that we're still trying to figure out how to use. Is there something that you're, you're more concerned about than others? Like, uh, you know, there's obviously there's, you can be talking about texting or using Google AdWords or things like that on the one hand or Facebook or what, you know, just, just don't say podcasting. Okay. Just don't. Right. Well, Peter doesn't want you to say that podcasts are, are harmful. You're right. Um, but, uh, but I mean, then you could start getting into other technologies like artificial intelligence or um, uh, other sorts of uh, visual things, or even, I mean, you could even get into like gaming and avatars and things like that too. But like, so what are the things that are, are most concerned when you, when you talk about people are concerned about it, what are, what are the sorts of things uh, people are concerned with? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's across the board, you know, and, um, uh, you know, it's easy to use the word technology or digital technology, but you just rattled off several different expressions of digital technology that all within themselves have their own sort of unique dynamic and in particular their own unique formational dynamic, you know, so, uh, watching YouTube videos and texting, are in some ways similar, but they're actually, you know, very different sorts of experiences. So I think the concern or the caution I see, at least in in, in the people that I serve and, and my friends and family, it's not so much, at least at this point, because I think we're still fairly early on in this journey. It's not so much sort of like a, you know, YouTube is okay, but social media, um, you know, Instagram is bad or, um, TikTok is evil, so just watch Netflix. It's not so much that. There isn't as much of that sort of differentiation. I think the the tone and the tenor of the conversation, at least at this point, seems to be much more in general, what does a digitally, a primarily digitally mediated life, what is, what is that doing to us as embodied humans? Um, I think at this point, that's also my highest interest. Um, and again, you know, I said earlier that there is a sort of inherent uh, danger built into some of these technologies, but I have to parse that out a little bit more. Um, I don't think the tools themselves are inherently um, evil. You know, I think typically most tools are um, amoral. They don't necessarily have an inherent morality. Although one could argue that, um, there is a lot of conversation about design ethics. You know, Tristan Harris, many people know that name because he helped produce that um, Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. But he's been writing about this for many years. Tristan Harris was actually a design ethicist at Google, and he left because he says publicly he realized it was just a PR move. Google wasn't really interested in implementing ethics into their design because it hurt the bottom line. 
so now he's he's like a he's like fighting for ethics in design. So you can't argue that you know there is some sort of latent inherent you know uh, immorality maybe. But but what I mean is that generally speaking, if we can leverage whatever tools, digital tools in particular, with enough discipline, we have it within ourselves to a certain extent. Um, we have it within ourselves to make sure that the digital technologies um, are being used by us and that they're not using us. But I think so often the danger is that because we don't see these technologies for what they really are or, or what they really can be in terms of their formational or deformational effect on us as humans, uh, they end up using us. You know, that's Tristan Harris's whole argument is – you know, he has this famous line, like, everyone thinks social media is free, but nothing is free. If it is free, then you're the product, you know, and that's true when it comes to social media. So um, I think that's that's generally the concern is that technologies, all of these technologies in their various forms and in their unique ways are using us rather than being used by us responsibly and that they're deforming us from um, experiencing life as whole, full, healthy, embodied human beings. And of course, for me as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus, primarily my greatest concern is about formation into Christ likeness. So the question I'm trying to ask is as digital technologies and our irresponsible, maybe even dangerous misuse of these technologies and in turn their use of us and their deformational effect on us, how is it then deforming us from the journey of being formed into Christ's likeness? Um, I think that's really uh, the, one of the key issues, if not the key issue to address when it comes to digital technologies, particularly for followers of Jesus in the digital age. So I want to come back to the episode question because <clears throat> what it, one of my favorite things to do with guests is to sit down with them and say, Hey, if you could put, you know, your topic in a why question, how would you do it? And like immediately you were like, why do we feel so discontent, fragile and foolish? And it did like it came off the tip of your tongue like that. So maybe I'm wrong about this. I have a feeling that you didn't necessarily go looking for writing two books about analog church and analog Christianity. <laughs> Um, right. It kind of found you in a very God-sovereign way. Um, you might have rather done a book about Ecclesiastes or something else. But <laughs> help help our listeners understand, you know, whether it's two moments or one moment, what was kind of the moment or the season that you said, somebody really needs to be engaging this topic? Because I don't hear you say run from technology, and I don't hear you say no. fully embrace it, but you're saying, hey... We're becoming discontent, fragile, and foolish, and it seems like the digital age is kind of helping us understand it. What was that one moment that you can point to and said, I need to respond to this? Yeah, I mean, there there was one moment. I, I tell the story in Analog Church uh, when my son was, he had just been born. He's almost four now, so this is almost four years ago. My son was a newborn. My daughter was three, and they were playing in this little... Um, we have like kind of a, we had an open floor plan. And so they were playing in this room and I was in the kitchen, but I could see them 
and they were both laying down on the on the floor and my daughter my three year then three-year-old daughter leans over and begins hugging and kissing her little newborn brother so i pull out my cell phone and i snap a photo because it's one of those moments you, you just got to snap a photo and then immediately my mind went to i got to post this on instagram and facebook because this is going to be a winner you know this is like i'm going to get so many likes or whatever that's where my mind went so i'm i'm editing the photo getting the right filter all those things and i'm doing all that i'm just immersed in that process and then i feel this tug on my leg and i look past the digital image of my daughter to see my actual real life daughter and she says to me, looking up with sadness in her eyes, she says to me, no more email, daddy, no more email. And what it told me was that she had seen her dad be physically present, but absent in every other way, so many times already in her three years of life. And most of the time, you know, flipping through email that she just assumed it was happening again. And it just broke my heart. And I put my phone down and hugged her, apologized. And we started playing, you know, with her little brother. But that got me thinking. It was like a real wake-up moment for me where I, I realized this, this is a problem. This is like a real – this is not a hypothetical problem. It's not something for me to preach about. This is an actual problem deforming um, who I am as a father and as a husband and just as a human, you know, and as a follower of Jesus. So I just started doing a lot of reading, actually. I, I just started, uh, not Christian writers, I just started reading other writers, secular writers who'd been, you know, um, addressing the issue of technology and how it's shaping us, you know, people like um, Gene Twenge and Adam Alter, Nicholas Carr, um, you know, Jerron Lanier, Tristan Harris. Uh, yeah, the list goes on and on. Some older folks, Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman, people like that. And it just, it started to open my mind. Like I began, the, these people started giving me language and concepts to be able to identify and name what was happening in me in terms of my addictions. Um, so then as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus, I started asking that question pertaining to the church. Well, if, the, if digital technologies are affecting me in this way, they must be affecting others and they might be affecting our ecclesiology and, and our understanding of what it means to be the church. And that's where analog church came from. And then as I continued thinking about that idea, the reality is this book that's just coming out now, Analog Christian, was actually the first book that I was going to write. And the publisher suggested we, we flip flop it around. And I think that was the right move, but this book, analog Christian is, is way more personal. This is the stuff that I've been wrestling with now for six, maybe seven years, um, you know, and uh, in earnest for at least the last, you know, four or, or five years. And uh, a lot of that, you know, is driven by, it's very personal. It's just my own sense of discontentment and fragility and foolishness. And, you know, a part of that obviously is just sin nature in me. I'm a fallen, broken, sinful human. But what I've realized is much of it has been hyper accelerated by what the digital age and my digital online social media proclivities have done, that they have accelerated me on this journey down the path of discontentment, fragility, and foolishness. I have just found myself in connection to my usage or um, social media's usage of me, 
I have found myself growing increasingly discontent and fragile and foolish in a lot of ways when I'm really honest with myself. And I think many people, if not most people, can relate to that when they just take a deep breath and consider their their lives. Um, so I just felt like uh, we had to we had to talk about it, you know, and uh, not just talk about it, but I found that um, scripture and Paul's words uh, in his letter to the Galatians in particular um, had a lot to say about it when we began unpacking it. So um, that's really where it came from. So let me real quick, you said something that I actually would want more context. Why do you think it was important to write Analog Church before Analog Christian? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in hindsight, it feels like it was divine providence. I I, I don't like to over spiritualize things, you know. I, uh, but it's pretty hard for me to get around it. It feels like it was divine providence. Initially, the decision was just, you know, the publisher, I had never written a, a book before, and the publisher thought, you know, Analog Church is much more of a niche book. It's focused very specifically on church leaders and pastors, and we feel like if you can give them something that's valuable, that'll help you then, you know, have a little bit of credibility with church leaders to be able to write to broader audiences you know, from there. So it was mostly just a strategic move. But in hindsight, Analog Church, you know, um, the book writing process is years long. So I, I signed the book deal two years before the book came out. The last word of the book was written a year before the book came out. So, but um, the release date for Analog Church had been set like a year in advance. It had been set to March 31st, 2020. And we had no idea there, that a, a pandemic would shut down everything. So two weeks uh, before the release of the book, a book in which I argue that embodied presence as the local church really matters in the digital age, embodied presence as the local church no longer was possible. <laughs> so we actually had conversations like, should we even release it right now? Should we delay but, you know, uh, we decided to release the book when we did. And so, yeah, you know, Peter, in, in a lot of ways, it just feels like it was divine providence in that way. Because if there was anything I would have wanted to say in the midst of the pandemic, it would have been what's in that book. So, yeah. That's so interesting. That's No, that's, thank you for re relaying all that. I'm, I'm curious. Um, well, I have, some, I have several questions, Peter, that are in my head. I want to ask them all. But um <laughs> it was just maybe jumping off of your your analog church element of it first uh, you were reaching out to church leaders and people who are trying to figure out how to navigate um, speaking to people in the midst of uh, when there's so much digital change that's happening I mean really every day there's there's new things that are happening you know yeah. one of the things that people are talking about now of course the the metaverse is a big thing or the virtual reality or augmented reality and 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 then, you know, you live in Silicon Valley, so you could probably tell us what's coming that your parishioners are talking about that is going to come <laughs> next that the rest of us haven't seen yet. But, uh, you know, should churches, uh, should or ministries or really anyone who wants to uh, have outreach, uh, I mean, should they be trying to engage? Should they be buying a property in the metaverse to engage on or should they be? I know that's kind of a new hard thing to understand, but. 
Um, is that something people should be looking at or should, should people be looking into using um, augmented reality or whatnot for church services? Or, or on the flip side, is that something that's, would you see that as something that's adding to a problem that we don't, we don't want to get into? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're pretty early in the conversation, you know, so I, I don't want to jump the gun here. I think I'm still learning. Um, but at least where I stand now, what I would say is, and I make, I, I suggest this in analog church, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Luddite, <laughs> you know, some people assume that I am, that my argument is throw away all digital technologies and live on a farm and turn your own butter and, you know, raise cattle or something. If that's what you're called to do, that's wonderful, but that's not me. You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not you know, arguing for um, the elimination of digital technologies. I'm only suggesting that we be thoughtful and careful in some ways about what position of power and authority we give these technologies in our lives. And also to live aware that if we are not intentional about placing these technologies in their appropriate place, they will take the place of their choosing. That's just I mean, that's the way the business is designed. And you see that all the time. You see it when you go to a coffee shop or a family dinner and everybody's sitting two feet from each other, but immersed in their phones. You know, they're sitting physically close, but couldn't be further apart in every other way. Well, that's because the technology has a hold of you. You know, we are worshiping at the altar of the technology rather than experiencing the fullness of life when we, when we, gather with embodied humans. So when it comes to the metaverse, again, I think we're really early, but I guess the first thing I would say is be mindful of what position of power and authority you give the medium. Uh, the other thing I would say, and this is something I say again in Analog Church, I think that digital is fantastic for informing one another, but transformation, not information, but transformation, I believe, happens most deeply and most effectively in analog, in embodied ways, when you actually show up and do the work. And if that is true, and I would suggest that that is true, so an example with that, of that would be um, if I want to transform my body, like my actual physical body, uh, I can watch all the workout videos I want to. I can get all the information and actually know all the information about how to do every single workout there is to do. But if I don't physically in, in an embodied way, do the exercises, go to the gym, run, whatever it might be, I'll be informed, but I'll never transform. And so it is with a soul and a life. So if that is true, then, then what I would say is that the metaverse is fantastic for information. So I think if we give it the metaverse as well as other digital technologies, if we give it that sort of position in our lives, hey, this is a great place for me to go to be informed, to have access to information in a really dynamic, engaging way, um, great. But if the expectation is that the metaverse will transform your life, I have a hard time believing that at this point. Because at the end of the day, you're going to put the headset down and fi find yourself just sitting in the same old basement with the same old life, you know, and, and maybe emotionally. And, and even I, I would, I would admit, you know, even socially, you might feel a sense of connection. What I'm not saying is that digital connections are not real connections. They are, you know, they really are. It's akin to, you know, having a pen pal before the internet, 
You know, we would write these letters to one another. Although I would also argue that a pen to paper writing a letter like that is a much more analog experience than a digital one. Um, so I, I would make that argument and not to rabbit trail too much. So an example would be if I wrote my wife a Valentine's email, that's a very different experience than if I give her a Valentine's day card and it's hard to quantify why, because the words are the same, but you know, most people listening to this podcast would tell me, Hey dude, just husband advice. Probably don't write the Valentine's email probably a better call to get the card we just know it you know like the experience is different sort of analog hand to pen to paper sort of thing so um you know we just have to be mindful like the metaverse is digital the metaverse is digital and that means it has uh particular limitations um but uh those limitations are not pertaining to information i think it's a great place to be informed and to a certain extent in a limited way to connect socially, but if we want transformation and if we want deep, meaningful connection in the most human way possible, I still think analog embodied presence uh, is the way to get there. Okay, let me just do a quick follow up sure. here. So I, I know we we talked to there. I kind of framed that question as in you know what would you advise to some of the the leaders that are ministry leaders or whatnot, but. Maybe even talking to an, an individual, um, what are some things that you you would be again? I and I totally get not against the use of technology at all. It's a like you said, often a a, a moral thing, and um, but uh, to use it in the right way or to use it cautiously, what are some things that you would recommend to an individual who might be listening? to this podcast to be wary of. And so like, you know, let me put it another way too. What's something that you have seen as maybe the most corrosive, the most uh, disembodying, like you said, uh, what is something that you're aware, is it the, is it the like button on Facebook? Is it the, is it the scroll? Is it uh, keywords? I mean, what, what hashtags, what is something that you're most wary of for individuals when they're in, engaged in technology? That, yeah, that's a great question, Aaron. I, you know, I, I hesitate to say most anything because I think that it's um, all of those things you just named. I would say, yes, they are corrosive. And I, I say that with no hesitation. I say it in full confidence. I think there is enough research and data. In fact, um, former uh, engineers, you know, like high-end senior engineers, including the person who designed the like button, uh, have been on record as saying that was one of the most dangerous things we've done and the results have been catastrophic. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially that's been said because this is not about just technology. It's about human psychology and social structures. And it's really about feeding the deepest, darkest, most insecure parts of our souls. You know, when we began, again, there's a lot of data and research to show this. I mean, it's highly addictive, you know, the desire for likes and retweets and, uh, you know, all of that. It's just really dangerous. So there's been there's a lot of literature about this that people can look up. I cite some of it in, in both books. But, um, yeah, so I hesitate to say any one thing is the most dangerous. I think, you know, maybe a better way to say it would be on the flip side of that. Um, one of the paths to um, 
recognizing maybe what components of digital technology are most dangerous to you is to digitally fast for a while and to deeply consider what it is about uh, the fast that makes it most difficult. Like, what do you miss the most? You know, do you miss the likes the most? It's like when I used to post these pictures, I used to get like 120 likes and I don't have that because I'm not posting pictures. It's impossible to really know and diagnose yourself until you fast. You know, it's almost like before you go in for surgery, sometimes they tell you to fast. You have to like empty out your, your system for them to be able to go in and get out the thing they need to get out. And so I think it's very similar to that. You know, I'm borrowing from Andy Crouch, who is a brilliant thinker, writer, and, and a friend who I admire and respect quite a bit. He suggests these different versions of dis- digital fasts. So he suggests one hour a day, one day a week, and then one week a year if you can. So, you know, try to fast every day from all digital technology, at least one hour a day. And that might be during, you know, dinner, you have a long dinner with your family or your friends for an hour and literally all digital technologies are off limits. And uh, maybe one day a week, can you take a Saturday? And that sounds intense for a lot of us, which reveals the level of and depth of our addictions. But is it possible that you can take an entire day of your week and just literally not touch any digital devices? And then this is the most extreme. Can you do a one week fast, you know, in any given year where for an entire week you're offline, essentially completely no email, no social media, you know, um, use a phone for literally making phone calls if you need to, but nothing else, no texting. So, and I've done some of that. I've never done a, a week in a year, although I, I, I'd like to eventually, but I, I have done and do regularly the one hour a day and fairly regularly the one day a week, typically Saturdays with my family. And early on, I just, I realized it, it, yeah, it happens pretty naturally. You realize the things you miss most. So what was diagnosed in me through that process is that the most dangerous addictions and I'm, I'm addicted or was addicted to so much about digital technology, but what I discovered about myself that I didn't know, I was most addicted to email. Interestingly enough, not social media as much, but this sort of incessant need to check my email, which was connected to all sorts of other inner work stuff in me, you know, my incessant need to be needed, you know, uh, my sort of deep, unhealthy desire and hunger for significance in the eyes of the world, you know, um, and, and again, that's formational. That's formational. So I was feeding that need in unhealthy ways, which was forming me, deforming me and reforming me uh, in dangerous ways. So diagnosing it and recognizing it has been step one in the, in the path toward healing and, and wholeness and, and being reformed into the image of Christ. So I love the direction of Aaron's question and actually fits really well. So we're talking about being discontent, fragile, and foolish. Um, my grandpa grandpa and grandma Englert in the 1960s. Um, I'm not sure which was which, but one was a registered Republican and the other was a registered Democrat. And their philosophy was, we are going to be registered this way because we'll get the information on both the candidates, which will allow us to make a decision, which it's very fascinating for me to think about that right now, because, um, 
you know, you could post an article from pick the opposite side of the aisle and people are like, do you know that yeah. without even reading the content? And as, as we think about being discontent, fragile and foolish, how do we like as individuals kind of overcome, like there's almost this legalism that if you're on this side of the issue, you can't spend time with this person. And we're actually not having the necessary conversations that are really messy. It's kind of like, I'd love to have a conversation, but you have to come to my side a little bit to this. So, you know, as you, I mean, I'm sure you're probably going to cover that in analog Christian, but you know, how, how can we do better digitally, but even more importantly, in person in a world where there would probably be no couple that say, I register this way. I register that way. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, there's this fantastic book that came out a year or two ago called Hate Inc. by a journalist named Matt Taibbi. And he basically talks about how media in general and specifically news and social media in the digital age, I'm paraphrasing him, but the whole book is about the concept that the, the media in general and social and online and news media specifically, it runs on the fuel of antagonism and hatred. So again, going back to that Tristan Harris quote about if something is free, you're the product. Um, in the digital age, you know, the sort of incredible polarization and division we feel, it's because we are the product being sold to and from one another amongst news media. So in a weird way, people think, well, Fox News and CNN they're rivals and they, they hate each other. And the reality is in some ways you can argue that that's true, that they're competitive. But in other ways, and I, I would suggest in more accurate ways, they're actually in cahoots. It's not necessarily CNN and Fox News. It's not even necessarily progressive and liberal with a big VS in the middle against one another. It's really humans and embodied relationships versus um, news, social, online media narratives. And I, I just think, I think awareness is one of those things. Again, not to repeat myself, but this is where a digital fast or a news fast or a media fast is really helpful. Uh, my wife, for example, used to be on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and actually several years ago, deleted everything. So you cannot find her on, on social media at all. And she is a different human being. And she talks about just how much better she feels. And I have never met a person. I have several friends. I mean, dozens of friends who've taken that step, just deleted all of their social media. Every single one of them, 100% of them say how much better they feel without it. And you would think that there would be a, a, a lot of loss and longing and, oh, gosh, I don't know what my friends are up to. I don't see them on Instagram or Facebook anymore. There is very little of that. There's a little bit every now and then. It's like, oh, I didn't know so-and-so had a baby. But what you quickly realize is that with the people with whom your real-life relationship dictates that you probably should know that they had a baby – 
those relationships are mediated in real embodied ways anyways, that um, basically what you're missing is mostly the friend you had in high school that you haven't seen in seven years. They had a baby and you kind of didn't know until, you know, there isn't like, uh, here's my dear friend. And because I don't have Facebook, I had no idea she got married. That never happens. You realize that there was a whole world uh, before before the internet, and and human beings were able to mediate meaningful relationships without the internet. And you rediscover that when you leave it behind. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think in so many ways. I, full disclosure here: if I wasn't, you know, a writer who had a book contract with a publisher, I would delete all of my social media <laughs> too. It just watching my wife live that way, it just feels like a better way to live. So I don't even know if that answered your question, Peter, but well, those are some thoughts. No, I, I think that those are important thoughts. You know, something I laugh about was, um, you know, my, uh, I think it was, it was the following year after the pandemic started, you know, we started reopening church and, um, yeah. my wife started coming back and she was pregnant and like, people didn't know that she was pregnant. So like people would be like, Hey, can we meet, you know? And it was like two weeks before she was due. Can we meet? I go, Hey, I'm going to schedule a meeting with you, but if I cancel, know this why. And it was really funny. They didn't know. They're like, your wife's pregnant. What? How long did you just find that? So there's a lot of like people in your circle find out, but where I want to go yeah. is, like you're painting a picture of a flourishing life and and you're trying to kind of how how can we engage digital so you've talked about fasting but i kind of want to push you that take us through a monday through saturday you know we talk a lot about sundays like what what's the the positive space as opposed to the negative space of you kind of painting a picture for 21st century people we have de-churched and unchurched people that listen to this podcast. What does that look like in your mind, um, you know, from that Monday through Saturday embodied presence? You know, what are those things? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, it's not monolithic. I don't want to say, here's the formula, just do this and everything will be fine you know, lives are unique stories and people are unique stories. So I think it begins again with awareness. I think where the fast is most helpful, like I said, is it will help you diagnose in which specific ways digital technologies and maybe your misuse or abuse of said technologies, in which ways they might be most harming you, most deforming you. And then you can respond accordingly. You know, that's where the fast, I think, is so helpful. But in terms of a Monday through, you know, Sunday sort of rhythm, yeah, at, again, at the risk of repeating myself, I, I just think incorporating intentional rhythms to live a non-digital life with some level of consistency is so critically important. So you know, replacement, I think, intentional replacement can be really healthy. Um, go on a walk on your break instead of scrolling 
your Twitter, you know, um, eat lunch outside instead of eating lunch at your desk while you read CNN.com or foxnews.com. Uh, you know, go slow. Some of this comes from uh, my friend John Mark Comer's book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. He's got these really practical things like driving the slow lane. <laughs> you know, like, because there's all these, uh, again, formational aspects of digital technology. Like, it's not even just when you're using the technology. We've become, as one example, so deeply impatient because everything in an online world is so fast. And we have to actually, um, you know, intentionally form ourselves into a patient people. And that that kind of thing can be really practical. So one thing I've uh, started to do and then stopped doing and need to sort of restart again, I live about a seven-minute drive from my office. But that seven-minute drive is about a 20-minute ride on my bike. So for several months not just for the exercise, but to slow myself down instead of driving to work, which is so easy and convenient, I started riding my bike to work because it just took me longer. And I was outside and I was using my body and um, you know, I could feel the wind on my face. Uh, all of those things are ways to remind ourselves that we are dirt and dust that God has breathed his life into animated creatures with body and bone and digital technology um, makes us really forgetful of that fact. We begin to be, believe that we're, we're simply avatars, you know, or that we're simply these feeds that we sort of project out into the world, but we're not. And so on a weekly basis, I just think incorporating rhythms that are really embodied and being consistent and disciplined about those rhythms is a healthy, um, and, and I would argue a very Christian way to live. Uh, what, that's, thank you for, thank you for sharing all that. Um, no, that was great. Yeah. What, what are some ways that you would, you would suggest to a Christian uh, or even a, or even a leader, but, a, but let's just, just anyone who's listening, you know, I, what I'm hearing you say is, doesn't mean that you don't use tools. So you you do a fast for from a tool to find out what what's what's hanging you up. You know what's or what's uh, what are you craving too much of? But let's say once you've kind of assessed where you're at, what are some ways that you you can use some of these uh, tools as tools? And what are some signals that you might see? Like okay, I need to be a little bit cautious here about using social media or using like i mean guess i guess i can i can see when there's with social media or with some other tools there's ways you can connect with people near and far um you could for a church you can connect with uh people you have doing outreach around the world that you wouldn't be able to connect with otherwise and uh you know you can be building relationships in that way but at what point at what point does the tool become something more than that something of a uh that's feeding your addiction or, or, or even maybe an idol of sorts. What are some warning yeah. signs that you're looking out for to, to be cautious for yourself, uh, for people in your congregation or just, just with friends or family? You know, and I'd add this, I want to have some fun with you because you said you're jealous of your wife and friends that got rid of social media. I guess I'd even make